For the last couple of Sunday mornings, I have brought teaching on the book of Galatians. So we've started a five-part series. Um, This is part three, and we'll just recap on what we have done. The theme of the book of Galatians is don't get fooled into following false doctrine, no matter how good or how reasonable it sounds. Stick to the full truth of God's Word. So that is how we interpret the book of Galatians. The thing we need to know about Galatia is that it's not a city. Um, some, some of the books of the Bible were written to cities or people, but this is actually to a Roman province. The Roman province of Galatia included many regions, many of which are referred to in the book of Acts, eastern Phrygia, Lycaonia, Isauria, Pisidia, and Pamphylia, um, where Pamphylia kind of moved in and out of being its own own region. Um, So it's kind of hard to tie down whether um, Paul was directly speaking to uh, the cities of Pamphylia at this time or not. Churches were established by Paul in Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium in Phrygia, Lystra and Derbe in Lycaonia, and the word was preached in Perga of Pamphylia as well. The background of the Galatian church, we read everything we know about the beginnings and background of the Galatian churches in the book of Acts. And so if we go to the next slide, we can see um, the churches in Galatia, that big green area up the top, uh, were started on Paul's first missionary journey. You can see um, lands from uh, going to the island of Cyprus into Perga, um, which is in Pamphylia, and then up to Antioch in Pisidia, which is Galatia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and then back through them on the way back to Antioch. And that is when the churches were first started. Next slide, please. Paul's second and third missionary journeys um, follow very similar uh, beginnings. It goes up through uh, uh, Cilicia, through Tarsus, and then uh, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, and Pisidia, and then out from there. One theme of when the churches were started, particularly in uh, this region, this Roman province of Galatia, is that there was strong opposition of the Jews in that area. Um, they originally preached in the synagogues um, to the Jews and, and, and then it spread out from there to the Gentiles. But the Jews didn't like the fact that the Gentiles were being preached to. And so there was strong opposition. They even followed them to other cities in Galatia and, and actually brought strong opposition. So in this kind of an environment, the, uh, the, the book to the Galatians was written, talking about, and, how, and we looked at in the last lesson, about how there, there were people that were trying to come and trying to bring the, 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 um, the teachings of the law, all of the different things, or particularly circumcision, particularly things that um, were very Jewish and were very uh, specifically for the Jewish nation, into place in these Gentile believers. 
But Paul was strongly opposing that and saying, this isn't what we've taught you. This isn't the way that God has brought these churches into being. And don't listen to anyone else that teaches something else, including the law. God brought the law into place. And he brought it for the Jewish people. But now there was something that was greater than the law. There was freedom. There was liberty. And and they didn't have to follow all of the sacrifices, all of the ordinances, everything that the law had put down. But there were people who were coming and troubling the church, saying that they needed to do these things. And so Paul was saying, though we or an angel or anyone else, a high-ranking figure in the church tells you anything different than what we have preached to you, he said, let them be accursed. You didn't say just ignore them and, and, and say, well, that's nice. He said, let them be accursed. He's saying, it's really important that you don't go under bondage. You don't go back to the things of the law that have been replaced by something better. So in the last lesson, uh, we finished off with uh, Galatians 2, 6 to 10 where Paul goes back to uh, Jerusalem and talks to the apostles and, and, and makes sure that the gospel he was preaching was correct. And he was happy to find out that it was. It was, it was completely in line with the church and, what God, and the way that God had set out the church. But of these who seem to be somewhat, talking about the apostles, the disciples... Whatsoever they were, it makes no matter to me. God accepts no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference when they talked together added nothing to me. There has been a big push in, in, in uh, many secular, well not secular, many, uh, many church circles today to actually lift up preachers, to lift up people and raise them, put them on a pedestal where they're not supposed to be. Jesus should be on the top. Jesus should be the one that we worship. And God uses messengers, sometimes powerfully. God uses preachers. But it is not the preacher that is the one to be worshipped. It is Jesus. And so he was saying that, these, these people, the, uh, these apostles, these disciples who had been with Jesus, he said, God accepts no man's person. He wasn't going to, to just, just lift them up and, and worship them as though they, they were something special, but they were the ministers of God. And while he respected that, he was saying he wasn't going to be overawed by, by what they seemed to be. And the the... The thing that was the most important was the Word of God and the truth that they were preaching. But contrary-wise, or otherwise, um, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision, the gospel to the Gentiles, was committed unto me as the gospel of the circumcision was under Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. So he's talking about Peter was sent by God to the Jews to preach the, the Word of God and the church and Jesus to the Jews. And, but Paul was specifically sent by God to preach to the Gentiles and to, to raise up churches, uh, Gentile churches. 
But, and God was working powerfully in both of them. And their ministries were aligned. And when James, Cephas, or Simon Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. He was saying, even the, the, the highest leaders in the, the Jewish church at that time, they didn't, they said, they didn't say, go back to the Lord. They didn't say, do everything that the Jews had to do. He said, you know, they gave us right hands in fellowship. They said, you're doing a great job. This is exactly the way that God wants to work with the Gentiles. But these Jews that have come, they were troubling them. He was, he was teaching against them. He was saying, don't go back. Don't go into the Lord. Don't go into that which has been replaced by something better. And it's the same thing for all types of false doctrine that can come in today. We talked last week about how um, we should never try to interpret the Word of God in our own way. That's why we have so many churches, um, uh, Christian churches, that have so many different beliefs. Um, It's in the the tens of thousands of of different denominations. Why are they different? Because they all believe something a little bit different to everyone else. But the Word of God is not to be interpreted in that way. There is a thread, there is a theme. It all works together. There is, um, there, there, um, the Word of God is all one single unit and God has, has made it to mesh together and merge together. We cannot afford to pick out one scripture and say, this means this, when the rest of the Word of God is saying something different. We cannot interpret. The Bible says that the scriptures are not of any private interpretation. We cannot choose to mean it, it to mean what we want it to mean for our own lives or for the church. So let's move on to this lesson. Galatians 2 and 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. This is Simon Peter. This is one of the great disciples, or one of the, 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 the men who stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached the, the new way of the church to the, the Jews that had gathered in Jerusalem at that time. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And, all, and the other Jews assembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. They, they basically separated themselves from the Gentiles. When God has called the church to be one, there is no greater nation in the church of God. The, the, the white people are not greater. The black people are not greater. We're all one. And it doesn't matter what color skin we have, we're all one in Christ. It doesn't matter what our cultural backgrounds are. God has given us a new culture, His culture in the church. At this time, political factors outside the church were motivating and perhaps lending credibility to the Judaizers' position. Now, the Judaizers were the ones that wanted to bring um, the church and the Gentiles all under the law. Everyone had to live by the ways of the law. The actions of the procurator of Judea 
Tiberius Julius Alexander, um, who ruled from AD 46 to 48, had inspired a militant response among the Judeans. And a full-scale insurgency against Rome had begun in AD 52. There was some serious things going on in the background. Jewish nationalism created a certain degree of hostility toward Gentiles. Okay, so we've got these Romans who are Gentiles uh, over um, the entire land of, of Israel. And we've got the Jews trying to live for God in the best way they, they knew how, and then there, there's this clash. And so there's, there's um, uprisings, and there's, there's all these sorts of things going on in the background at this time. Associations with Gentiles came to be seen as betrayals of Jew, Jewish independence. It is therefore not hard to see why men from James, or from the Judean church, were dispatched to Antioch, the headquarters of the Gentile mission. It is likely that the church in Jerusalem did not want to see its evangelism to the Jews hampered by the kind of flagrant relationships that some of its leaders, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, were having with uncircumcised Gentiles. Paul was always torn by his love for his countrymen, but neither was he willing to see the Gentile mission compromised by what saw as an addition of extra layers to the gospel. We never can add anything to the Word of God. We never can add anything to the church. It will only lead to the wrong result. It will only lead to moving away from God instead of towards Him. He saw that this was a betrayal of the free gift of God in Christ. We cannot live like Jews because God has not called us to that. For Paul, the gospel could never be used as a pawn for political reasons. Galatians 2 and 14. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live after the manner of the Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why are you compelling the Gentiles to live as the Jews do? We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Paul's complaint against Peter began with a charge of hypocrisy. This is Simon Peter. This is one of the great disciples who was with Jesus the entire time. Peter was living after the manner of the Gentiles inasmuch as he had received justification in the same basis as the Gentiles by the faith of Christ. You see, Peter was living as a saved Christian Jew. He was not living as a Jew anymore. He was in the church he was following the way that God was having him to follow. He received salvation through faith and not by the works of the law, not by the sacrifices, not by everything that had been put in this, in this law that had been superseded. It had been replaced by something better.
By withdrawing from fellowship with the Gentiles, his actions were suggesting the Gentiles have been excluded once again from salvation. After all, why do you remove yourself, make yourself distant from someone? It's because there was some reason, some, some, some way in which that you were different. When in the church, God has made us all one. Paul used some hypothetical remarks to reveal the danger of Peter's position. Jewishness was something that one had from birth. It was not something that one could come to possess by acquisition or good works. You're either a Jew or you weren't. You're one of God's chosen people or you weren't. And the law was given specifically to the Jews. If a Jew sinned, he had the ability by the provision set forth in the Torah to obtain forgiveness. He could make sacrifices. He could do this. He could do that and come back into uh, the way that God had set out. If the works of the law could have saved, then Peter's birth would have entitled him to find salvation under the covenant that was made to Moses. But the Gentiles that he once called brethren had no such luxury. So we've got these Jews who by their birthright could uh, become pure, become clean under the law, but the Gentiles had no such birthright. They couldn't look to the acts of the law. They couldn't bring sacrifices to the temple to make them pure or righteous. The Gentile was under no illusions that they could be justified on the basis of their own goodness. The Gentile was an outsider to that covenant given to Moses, the law, and had to depend on Christ alone. However, if Peter went back to dependence upon the works of the law, he would have been rejecting his earlier belief in Christ's sacrifice being everything to everyone. This would have sent a strong signal to the Gentiles. They would have seen that not only were they outsiders to the Mosaic law, but now the only hope of salvation, Jesus Christ was considered insufficient by the church's most prominent leader and Christ's earliest follower. The danger to Peter himself was that he knew all along that the law was only provisional in the nature. It was only there for the purpose of bringing us to the time of the church. In terms of salvation, it provided a temporary means of attaining forgiveness until Jesus Christ came. In terms of providing a moral standard, it exposed the sinfulness of humanity and revealed humanity's need of a saviour. The law was there to, to let people know that their works were not the works of God. The sacrifices that they needed to bring for sin, how many times had each person sinned and said, okay, I need to bring a sacrifice now. I need to do this now. I'm, I'm unrighteous in the law of God. And so I need to make things right with God. They had to keep doing it and doing it because in the flesh alone, it's not possible to follow the righteous law of God. It exposed the sinfulness of humanity and revealed humanity's need of a saviour. In other words, it served and still serves a holy purpose, but it was not God's final step in his salvation purposes. And we thank the Lord for that. I would hate to be under the law today. Paul quotes Psalm 143 and verse 2 in support of this point. 
and enter not in judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. We cannot be justified in our own selves. Entering into judgment is, is something that, that God does in, in order to justify, but we cannot be justified in our own self. Verse 17, But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. Paul put aside the notion here, he refuted it, that the appearance of Christ by rendering the law ineffectual and providing forgiveness of sins had merely increased the sum total of sinners in the world. If the law was of no use anymore, then in addition to the Gentiles who were born in sin and without the ability to be saved by the covenant, the Jews now also found themselves without an opportunity of forgiveness. Paul rejected this objection strongly. The law's ultimate purpose was not to fulfill the promise of eternal life. It was a tool to help realize that promise. Its work was diagnostic, exposing human beings as sinful and in need of redemption. The law was there to make us realize just how impure and how unholy we were. Verse 18. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For if for I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, yet I live. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul used the same language here to describe his uh, crucifixion with Christ in, in, in the language that he's talking about here, that Matthew 27, 44 and Mark 15, 27 use, if we look at the next slide. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. And Mark 15, 27, and with him they crucified two thieves, one on his right hand and the other on his left. So when we talk about when Paul talks about being crucified with Christ, he's talking about the, the death of his flesh. He's talking about the death of himself on a cross to live for Jesus because of his death for us. The point of Paul's formula here was to show that just as one's death releases one from the rule of a law, the one who dies with Christ in baptism, as Romans chapter 6 and verse 3 says, Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. We are set free from the jurisdiction from having to follow the law. Because of Christ's resurrection, the believer is raised to live again by faith in Christ. We are not told to live by works. We are not told to do this and you will get to heaven. We need to have faith in Jesus. We need to have faith enough that we will follow the salvation plan that he set out for the church and not for the Jews. The eye that has died that Paul talks about has been replaced by Christ. 
who, having fulfilled the law, is the new I that lives. When we have the Holy Ghost within us, we have Jesus living within us, directing us, leading us into righteousness, into all salvation. However, if we build again, as we saw in verse 18, the law, law's former jurisdiction, or what it used to have, the hold that it used to have over the Jews, we become transgressors again. Because we cannot live by works. The works alone aren't going to save us. And it's very easy for us as Christians to think, and it's not always conscious, that we that our works, the things we do, are going to save us. It's very easy to fall into the, the pattern of thinking, well, if I pray for an hour a day, if I read the Bible every day, if I come to church faithfully, then I'm going to be saved. But we can do those things without our heart being in it. Those things are very important. Those things are essential to our salvation. But... God cares more about what's inside. What's the reasons why we are praying? What's the reasons why we are coming to church? It should come from our hearts. It should come from our desire to be closer to Jesus. It should come from our desire to be close to Him and from knowing that He is our Savior and from knowing that He is the one that wants to take us from sin and into salvation to eternal life. It's possible to do all of those things just mechanically without our heart being in it. But God wants and needs our heart to be in it. It has never been about the works that we do. Otherwise, the law would have been enough. We would be under the law. The church would be under the law today. And the Bible says that if there was going to be any law, any any set of works that we could follow that would lead to salvation, it would have been the law that was given to Moses because it contains everything that is good. But being humans, being being flesh, it is not possible for us to follow the law of God. So God had to do something different. He had to put it into our hearts. He had to give us the ability to follow Him, not just give us rules to follow And so when we follow him, it needs to be from our hearts. It needs to be not thinking, oh, I miss prayer today, I'm such a sinner. No, there needs to be in our hearts, I miss prayer yesterday, I want to get back into his presence today. I miss reading the word of God today, I need, I want, I desire to get into his presence, let him speak to my heart. I missed church the other day. I'm not a sinner, but I want to be in his house the very next time. I want to be in his place. I want him to speak to me. I want him to deal with me so that I can get to heaven and lead others in that same way. Verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. We didn't need Jesus if righteousness came was was in the law. We didn't need the new way, but because the law was not able to, on, on its own, to save us, we needed Jesus. We needed his death, his burial, and his resurrection to bring in this new way where he can come into our hearts. 
Oh, foolish Galatians, verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you? Essentially, Paul's words expressed outrage at the irrationality of where the way the Galatians were heading back into the law. He certainly believed that his audience could not have been led down this path by the evidence at hand, by everything that they had preached, by the way that God moved in the services, and by the way that the word came into their hearts. That wasn't leading back towards the law. He was saying, who's bewitched you? Who has has muddled your mind? Because that's not the evidence that has been put before you. Verse 2, this only would I learn learn of you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? It's a rhetorical question. They received it by the hearing of faith. They weren't told to, to do the works of the law. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, Are you now made perfect by the flesh? Isn't the spirit much better than the flesh? Isn't God's spirit much better than our carnal, sinful flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it yet be in vain? They'd been persecuted for their beliefs, and now they're going to go back? He therefore that ministers to you the spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Once again, a rhetorical question. It's the faith. It is the miracles that come by the Spirit of God and not by the works of the law. Paul here referred to the reception of the Spirit, which the Galatian believers received away from the covenant that was given to Moses, the law. The expected way of life would be to begin with the lower in order to ascend to the higher. It's the same principle in teaching. You teach the smaller things. You teach the things of lesser value. And then you build on it to greater things. And you come to the sum picture and the, the, the full value and the full knowledge of what you can learn. He's saying it's the same thing here. But these believers were working backwards. They had received the fullness of the Spirit. They received the way the, the, the church, God had set the church out but they were going back into the the works of the law. Since the law, unlike the Holy Spirit, was a means to an end and not an end unto itself, it was not productive. It It was not reasonable for the Galatians to start with the Spirit, which is the end, and proceed to the law, which was a means. After hearing Paul's message of Christ crucified, the Galatians believed and had a powerful experience of the Spirit talked about miracles just in that verse which confirmed God's approval of them but they had decided that God's own initial judgment of them was flawed now they were seeking his approval by fleshly means namely circumcision it was trying to point out to these Galatians it doesn't make sense that's not the way that God wants to work in your lives verse 6 even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Abraham was the crucial figure in Paul's defense of his teaching. 
in his readings of Scripture, and he noticed that God had called someone righteous long before the law was given to Moses. In fact, Abraham was counted righteous before he took the mark of obedience, which was circumcision, that later was supposed to set the Jews apart from other nations. In verse 6, Paul was quoting Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. And he believed in the Lord talking about Abraham and he counted it, and that's God talking about God, to him, Abraham, for righteousness. When Abraham believed God, when he had faith in God, that was counted to him for righteousness. There was no circumcision. There was no law. It was counted to him for righteousness because of his faith in God. What Abraham believed was that God would fulfill his promise to make Abraham a father of innumerable children. Trust is the highest form of praise. And in, as the opposite, distrust is the greatest form of condemnation. To trust God as Abraham did was to give God the highest compliment. It was to believe in God's promises on the basis of his character and his integrity. God had said it and he was going to believe it. Abraham's faith was, was therefore the typical example response to God, the one to follow. Abraham believed in God's promise over and against the report of his senses and experience, which told him that he and his wife were too old to have children. They were getting close to 100. They, they were unable to have children in the physical, but still Abraham somehow believed in God's word. God has given us promises that we need to believe in, even if they are impossible. God has called some of us into ministries that we cannot even believe is going to be possible. But if God has said it, we need to believe it because he will bring it to pass in his time. We just need to be faithful. We need to keep believing on the promises that he has given. On the basis of Abraham's trust, God set his seal of approval upon him, that he was righteous. And all who believe Abraham, sorry, and all who believe as Abraham believed are his children. We are following in the footsteps of Abraham in the church today. Verse 8, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So it's after the blessings given to Abraham, it's after the promises given to Abraham, it's after the blessings of righteousness because of faith given to Abraham that we are blessed today with the age of the church. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Here Paul quoted Genesis 12 and 3, And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curses thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. It turns out that Abraham was, among other reasons, a blessing to the nations. He said the pattern by which the Gentiles would be made right with God. Verse 10. For as many as are under, sorry, as are of the works of the law, are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law 
to do them. So if they were going to do one thing from the law, they needed to do it all. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for the just shall live by faith. If they which be of faith are blessed, as verse 9 says, then those who are not of faith are cursed. Quoting from Deuteronomy 27, 26 and Habakkuk 2 and 4, which say, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. So that was when God gave the law. They had to follow all of the words of the law. Otherwise, there was a curse upon them. Habakkuk 2 and 4 says, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Quoting those two verses, Paul demonstrated that the Jews who had transgressed the law and had therefore fallen under its curse were now left with no alternative for attaining eternal life except through faith in God. It wasn't something that was just nice to do, to believe in God, but they had to. They had fallen away from God. They had not been able to follow the law. And so the only way to salvation for the Jews, as well as the Gentiles, was following this new and this living way. Verse 12, And the law is not of faith, but the man that does them shall live in them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Jesus came to fulfill the law and replace it. Paul here was contrasting the two different approaches towards salvation. The attempt to gain righteousness by following the law did not follow the pattern given by Abraham. This approach, following the law, was not of faith. For proof of this, in verse 12, Paul quoted Leviticus 18 and verse 5, which says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them, I am the law. They had to live in the law. They had to follow everything in the law. The law had to be their whole being, their whole way of life. Paul quoted Leviticus 18.5, highlighting the word doeth in that passage. For Paul, the law was a matter of doing, but the pattern of Abraham was believing in the promises of God. At a certain point, there is little difference between believing and doing. Next slide, please. James 22, 20-26 um, says, But will you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? We need to have faith in Jesus, but we need to let that faith cause us to do something. We can't just say, I believe in God, I believe in God, I believe in God, and then just stay in a sinful state. That belief in God will cause us to want to get closer to Him, to want to follow what's in His Word, to want to do what He has asked us to do. So faith must exist with works, but that wo- those works need to be the way that God has set out in his word, the way of the church. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? See, do you see how faith wrought with his works and and by works was faith made 
perfect. He followed God and that was counted to him for righteousness. And the scripture was fulfilled which said, which says Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him. It was given to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. The, the harlot Rahab believed that these men were from God. He, they, she believed that there was... Um, uh, that, that God was going to come and destroy the city. She knew that God was with these people. But if she said, okay, I believe they're with his, with his people and then just let them be captured, then she would not have been saved herself when the destruction came. It was her works, it was her acting on that faith that caused her to be, so, to, to be saved. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Our faith should cause us to do something, to respond, to react to the Word of God. So at a certain point, there is little difference between believing and doing, as we've just seen. Paul was not opposed to the works of the law. He was stating in other places that good works are the natural result of true faith. As we see in the next slide in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. These are not contradictory passages of Scripture. They work together. Our faith should cause us to do something, to do works, to actually act on our faith. But here it's saying we do not need to do the works of the law. It's not by our own works. It's not by our own righteousness that we've done by doing everything according to the letter it's not going to save us it's only by grace that we are saved it's only by his salvation by following his word that we're going to be saved paul however was a highly analytical thinker he divided faith from works in his teaching in order to demonstrate number one what the precise function of the law was in God's salvation economy. It was a schoolmaster to bring us into him and to how God was going to fulfill his promises to Abraham concerning the Gentiles. All nations were going to be blessed through Abraham. And this is where we're seeing it now in the church. For Paul, faith was the universal act of Abraham. It was an action that anyone can follow. However, circumcision, the work of the law that Abraham later obeyed, was particular. It was a purely national sign that sealed God's covenant with the Jews. Verse 15. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no man uh, disannuls or um, or takes away from, or adds thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He says, not and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot make of none effect that it should make 
It cannot disannul, cannot take away that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Paul's argument here came from ordinary life when he said after the manner of men. The argument essentially runs as follows. If a covenant is made between two people, one party cannot change the terms of the covenant at a later date unless both parties agree to change it. Since there was a covenant made between Abraham and his seed on the one side and God on the other, and since Abraham was not present at Sinai and neither was his seed, which Paul noting the singularity of the term interpreted as Christ, the covenant at Sinai could not have annulled the covenant made 430 years earlier in Genesis chapters 12 and 15 where God gave promises to Abraham. It was still in effect. Faith still justified. And the promise regarding Abraham's role down through the ages was still in force. The law given to Moses, however, had come along as a separate and temporary covenant. It was created in order to bring about the answer to a, a crisis that was happening at that time, a crisis of conscience among God's people. They were not following God in a good way, and they needed the law to bring them into line. It was only meant to be temporary until something better came, Jesus Christ. Verse 19. Wherefore then serves the law? What purpose does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. They, the, if you read what um, came before coming up to um, the, when the law was given out, the, the nation of Israel were rebellious. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They, they sinned by worshipping other gods. They needed to be pulled into line. Just following um, Moses was not enough. They needed to have something to follow. But the time of the church was not there yet, so the law was put into place. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, Verily, righteousness should have been by the law. The law was the best you can get. The best possible way that you can get for following God just by works. But the problem is that no one can actually follow it because there is that sinful nature in us. But the scripture has concluded all under sin that by the, pro- sorry, that the promise of faith by Jesus, Christ, by Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. We needed a mediator. We needed someone to step in the gap. Moses did mediate for the children of Israel, but he was not enough. We needed Jesus Christ to stand in the gap, to come and die for us, that we could be saved. We could not do it without Jesus. And Jesus was the fulfilling of the law. He was the one that was able to finish the law, and bring into place 
a new covenant, a better way, something that was able to get into our hearts and change us from the inside out. He was the perfect mediator because he was both God, fully God and fully man. No one else could have done it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept under the law. Shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. So, basically saying that the law was bondage. They were, they were bound to do the law. And the faith that Abraham had, you couldn't just follow by that faith. But now, there's something better. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. We've reached the, the church. We've reached the thing that the schoolmaster has brought us to. Schoolmaster was good to, to bring us to this time, this age, to make us mature and to bring us into perfect fullness of understanding and a new way of living for Jesus. The law was given in order to create a crisis in the human conscience that people would be able to realize that they were sinners, that they were not following God in, in, by, by doing what they wanted to do. Every time they did something they wanted to do, it was something that was against God's will because of our flesh, our carnal, our, our, the evil that is within us, the sinfulness that is within us. Because of the fall, the standard of perfection that the law demanded could not be met. Because Adam and Eve sinned, we could not fulfill the law. Because we have a sinful nature, we could not fulfill the law. We could not follow it. But we constantly be reminded by his or her own sinfulness of the impossibility of doing so. Finding one, finding yourself constantly transgressing, the sinner was compelled to yearn for a saviour and fall back onto the grace and mercy of God. The term translated here, schoolmaster, would be more accurately understood if merely um, literally translated pedagogue or literally child leader. In antiquity, a pedagogue's task was not to teach children. If Paul had meant schoolmaster, he would have used the, the different uh, Greek term didaskolos, which means schoolmaster. The pedagogue was a slave whose task was to lead them to school and govern their behavior. Thus the law here was here equated with a servant whose job was to lead God's children by their constant failings to Christ, the merciful Savior, simply because the law was never going to be good enough. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's no separation. There's no Jew. There's no Gentile. There's no need to, to believe different things or to be circumcised or follow the culture of one particular nation. We have... Jesus. We have his law written in our hearts, which is not the same as the Jewish law, but it is a leading to him. It is a guiding. It is a drawing to him to be more like him. And it's a heart thing, not 
a head thing. And if you be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Please stand. We have something so much better today than the Jews ever had. We have, by the, the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, we have the ability to come into his house with pure hands, with a clean heart, with him following, with him leading us and to help follow him in the way that he wants. We have something better. Don't try to follow God by your own works. Don't think that just doing this or doing that will make me righteous, will make me holy with God. He wants our hearts. He wants everything within us. He wants ourselves. And if I could get someone to the piano, please. I wasn't sure whether I was going to call an older call this morning or not. But the Lord is drawing this morning. We've had tongues and interpretations this morning about how awesome God is and how much he loves us. And in the past, maybe you've tried to live for God by your head. You may have tried to to live for God by saying, if I do this, if I pray for an hour a day, or if I pray for two hours a day, if, if I do this, then God's going to see me as righteous. That's not the way it is. He wants our hearts. And if you realize that you have been following God with your head and not with your heart, then he wants your heart as well. And I know that there are times when we can get hurt in our hearts and they can make it difficult for us to open up to him. But he is calling out to us this morning and he's drawing this morning. He wants us to live in freedom. He doesn't want us to live in bondage. Sin is bondage. Trying to follow rules and regulations is bondage. But when we come to him with our hearts, when we come to him willing to yield ourselves and our spirits to him and say, God, I just want to please you. I just, I just want to follow you and serve you. I know that you're in this place. I know that I want you. I know that I need you. My life has been nothing short of a disaster. But I know that you're in this place and you want to make my life better. You've said so this morning. I, I just ask that you would respond to the Spirit of the Lord this morning. We can never do it by our own works. We can never do it by our own power or our own strength. If we could, then we'd still be under the law. But we need Jesus. We need to trust in Him. We need to have faith in Him for all of His promises. He has promised that He will deliver us from sin. That is a promise in His Word. If you are struggling with something this morning, if you are unable to break from it, we need Jesus. We need Him. We need to trust in Him more. We need to follow Him more. If you're trying to do it just by works and by your head, and let him get into your heart this morning because he loves you. And the relationship that you will have with him is greater than any relationship on this earth. If you have never experienced it, you might be thinking, well, it's easy to say that. Yes, yes, it is easy to say that. 
but you have an opportunity to actually experience that this morning. Don't let this opportunity pass you by. Your life is in such a mess. Why don't you just try Jesus? He wants you to follow him this morning. He wants you to respond to his drawing of his spirit this morning. He has everything for you. You lose nothing by following Jesus. But you gain everything by allowing him to speak to your heart and your spirit. I invite you to come. Respond to what you feel the leading of God in your heart this morning. Please come as we sing.